Let me see. We just lit a candle of fulfillment, but last week, we lit a candle, a proclamation, makes sense. Week before that, we lit a candle after readings about being prepared. In that first week of Advent, we lit a candle about preparation. But it's this one. It's this one right here that gives me problems. Fulfillment. See, what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to offer you the simple fact that I think that this Christmas thing was all wrong from the beginning. In other words, if God had asked me for how things should have been done, I have a, an idea in my mind. I have some suggestions that I would like to bring to bear before you as my congregation today because this candle of fulfillment just seems a little bit off. It just seems, it seems like really nothing has been fulfilled. So I offer you the simple fact that these, this is the way I think everything should have happened that leads up to the celebration of Christmas. If I offend any of you, I apologize, but this has been weighing on me, and I think that this is the way things should have been for talking about truly understanding what it means to walk through those steps of being of expecting whatever it is at Christmas, of being prepared for what is to come, of proclaiming the message, and then wrapping it all up with fulfillment. This is, these are the things I think should have happened at Christmas. First and foremost, Jesus should have been born at home. I mean, give me a break. Uh, today, children are born in a sterile environment. They are born close to home unless something unforeseen happens. And if God had really been serious about this thing of Christmas, I think he would have had Jesus be born at home. He wouldn't have had to have made that journey, though he was yet to be born. His parents wouldn't have had to make that journey to Bethlehem. So, there you have it. Something that is not right there. He should have been born at home, which leads me to the next proposition. Mary and Joseph should have made reservations. Okay, now think, I mean, I'm just thinking logically here. I mean, I know we've got the scripture that paints this picture in Matthew 2 and in Luke 2 of the Christmas story, but if you're really going to get serious about it, Jesus should have been born at home, and since he wasn't going to be born at home, they knew they were going to be called to give an account of, of who they were in a census by Caesar Augustus, and they had to travel back to Bethlehem. They could have made arrangements prior. I mean, there's no excuse for that lack of sensitivity, all right? This stable manger situation is completely unacceptable in my mind. Okay, they didn't think to make reservations. Let's give them that. But then, not making reservations, the only thing that Joseph can come up with is this. I mean, this, this is totally, this is totally wrong. It just doesn't, it's not fulfilling anything in my mind, except just bringing a lot more doubts to the situation. 
Which leads me to the next thing. Swaddling cloths. You know what that is? Those are rags that were used to take care of animals in that stable where they shouldn't have been in the first place because they should have made reservations and they should have been at home for this birth in the first place. But swaddling cloths, it sounds so innocent and it sounds so, it sounds so uh, homey, but it's not. It's totally out of context. It's totally out of place. And shepherds, shepherds as witnesses, Okay, once again, think about it. These are teenagers. They're less than minimum wage workers. They are the witnesses to the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I mean, you add everything up here, and it adds up to just one big question mark. These are the things, in my mind, this is what should have happened. These are the things that still could have accomplished God's ultimate will. If Joseph, I'm not going to really put anything on Mary here. She has enough to deal with in and of itself. But Joseph, since Matthew 2, and that's where I want to focus this morning. Matthew 2 is the Christmas story from his perspective. Luke 2 is the Christmas story from Mary's perspective. It seems like Joseph could have shown a little more presence of mind. He could have been a little more responsible. These are the things that I think should have happened, which we have to deal with the fact that certain things did happen. God's Word says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so were my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Folks, the first few minutes here, you indulge me in a little humor, if you will. But the bottom line is, what I think should have happened... What seems logical is tossed out the window when we go back to the simple fact that God has made it very clear in his word that he doesn't think like I think or you think. He doesn't do things according to our schedule. What we think should have happened has no bearing upon what God orchestrated and what did ultimately happen. And when we light a candle over here that represents fulfillment, that's exactly what Jesus' birth and his life, and his cross, and his resurrection, and his eventual return to this earth that we anticipate. It is all of those things that fulfill prophecy, fulfill what was spoken centuries before his birth in the Old Testament. So I want to ask you to glance briefly with me at the framework of the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective. Matthew chapter 2. Luke 2 greatly overshadows. Verses 1 to 20 of Luke 2 greatly overshadow this version of the Christmas story that we find in Matthew 2. But it's Matthew chapter 2, I think, that really brings us to the point of where all these candles begin to build upon one another. And as we look at what the birth of Jesus fulfilled today, if we look carefully at it and seek for the Holy Spirit to speak to us, then our own lives can be fulfilled 
in the life of Christ. What did happen? The fulfillment of prophecy? Let's go back to Matthew's account and let's find out what prophecies actually were fulfilled and what this means for us today. Going back to the first chapter in the 22nd and 23rd verse, we find that there was a prophecy that spoke about Jesus being fully God and yet fully man. It's those words that were spoken to the parents where it says, All this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. And here's the quote. Behold, The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What did happen? The birth of Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that had been spoken centuries before in the Old Testament. And one of the main ones that was fulfilled was Isaiah's prophecy centuries before Jesus was born. That the birth of the Messiah would be a miraculous birth. It would be God coming to this earth, fully God and fully man. And that was going to be accomplished through what we know to be the virgin birth. One of the greatest doctrines of Scripture. One of the greatest mysteries of God's Word. Yet it's so simple when we really look at it. That what this promise is, is that we would not, could not be saved by any human. But we could only be saved by the perfect God who created all things in his image. And he chose to come into this world, not through the curse of the seed of man, but through the perfect, sinless birth of a virgin. It made it possible for the Savior of the world to be unlike any other person ever to be born. Fully God, fully man. That's what was fulfilled when we think about all the things that happened at Christmas. Not only that, there is a prophecy concerning the city of David. The city, the village of Bethlehem. It's in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, where the scripture says... Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem along with him. So gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And here's the quote. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, now we've heard this story before. This is a story that introduces us, the part of the factual evidence that introduces us to the king named Herod. He's known as Herod the Great because you have to distinguish him from his family. There are other Herods in the New Testament. There is a Herod whose name is Antipas, a Herod whose name is Archelaus. These are sons of this one who is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the the king of the Jews, if you will, when Jesus was born. 
But it's these magi, these kings who come searching for the birth of the king of the Jews. Interesting. These guys are Gentiles. And yet they're interested in one who is known to be the king of the Jews. This star in the universe... People have tried to come up with all kinds of explanations for it. Halley's Comet, they can trace it back, but it appeared close to the earth four or five years before Jesus was born. That much we know. There was an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn that happened shortly around or near the very birth of Christ. And some have speculated that it was this alignment of Jupiter, the planet of the gods as known in mythology. Interesting. What we do know is that these ancient people studied the stars. And they were much more advanced than perhaps we give them credit for. And so you have the common work, the teamwork of astronomers and astrologers. For in the first century, they went hand in hand. No horoscopes in mind here that you read in the comic books or in the paper. But what did they do? When they saw something that looked significant and something looked significant in the heavens. They related it to the fact that everything that happened in the universe was connected to one thing or another and there must be something big going on. These wise men no doubt were wealthy. They could make a journey like this and they no doubt had enough information to be able to come to that part of the world And Herod had enough going because of his political savvy to save his own skin. To pretend that he too wanted to acknowledge the birth of the new king of the Jews. But yet his treachery was really what motivated him. But it's the prophecy that's so strange. It's from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It was written centuries before Jesus was born. And it speaks of what? It speaks of the tiny village of Bethlehem. Micah was writing because he was trying to warn the people that they were going to be judged and the nation would be destroyed and they would be exiled and scattered. And yet, Matthew lifts out of that prophecy a strange mention of the city that would live in the shadow of Jerusalem forever. Six miles south of the capital city, the village of Bethlehem. And yet people who really studied these scriptures understood and knew the importance of Bethlehem because it had been foretold that the coming Messiah would be born in that town. And here they simply think it's the king of the Jews. And yet we know that he was so much more than that. He's the savior of the world. And he was born in A very nondescript place where if you weren't searching, you'd overlook it. You would look somewhere else. But it was in Bethlehem. Interesting. The Magi called him king of the Jews. You'll find in Scripture that it was 30, 33 years later when another group called him king of the Jews. No one else did. And it was a group of Roman soldiers who gathered around his cross. Fulfilled. Strange. But you see, Matthew is being led to have us look at the big picture of Jesus' birth from afar. It starts with his virgin birth. It then spills over into the very place where he was born. But that's not all Matthew tells us. 
He continues in verses 13 through 15. It says, now when they had gone, that means the Magi, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and he said, get up, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, he took the child, took his mother, and in the night they left for Egypt. He remained there until Herod's death. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay, now, once again, what did this fulfill? We light a candle for fulfillment. Okay, the virgin birth, we get that. Isaiah 7, he spoke it centuries before Jesus was born. The nondescript prophecy about the birthplace of this new king. It would be Bethlehem. And that's what happened. That's where the Magi were led by the star. But this one. See, what happened in the context, we know, is the Magi did come. And they were going to go back and deliver a message of where to find this child to Herod. But they went home by another route, the Bible says. And so God warned Joseph in a dream. And he said, Herod is going to come looking for the child. So flee to Egypt. And that's what they did. It's over in Hosea. It's in a nondescript chapter in Hosea who was a prophet who spoke centuries before Jesus was born, where it says, out of Egypt I called my son. Folks, look at it. When Hosea wrote those words about God's unending love for his people, even though his people turned away time and time again, just like Hosea's wife was unfaithful to him time and time again. This image of Egypt struck home. Egypt. That's where the children of Israel were captive for 400 years. Egypt. That's where they were enslaved. And out of Egypt did I call my son. When Hosea wrote it, the nation was remembered there. That's what everyone looked at. Yes, we remember. It was God who called Moses and he led the nation out of Egypt toward this promised land. It was always a message, a a sign of salvation, except it was one of failure. For Israel failed to meet the expectations God had given to them. They failed to come in and be faithful when they took the land of promise. But here, when Joseph and Mary take the baby and flee to Egypt, Matthew remembers that there was a, there was a reference to salvation. And he says, out of Egypt did I call my son. Oh, yes, yes. Can't you see, people? That's what he's saying. He's saying, you'll miss it. You're not looking carefully. But out of Egypt, Jesus came. And Jesus did not fail in his mission. Jesus succeeded where the nation never could or would. Out of Egypt did I call my son. Matthew's not through yet. He's got two more prophecies for us to look at. It's only 10.15. I know you watch the clock, and I really don't care that you watch the clock. (laughs) We'll be done when we're done. And we're always done in plenty of time. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, 
Ammonites, is verse 16. He became very enraged and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. I'm two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. That what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And here it comes. He quotes from Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. What's going on here? You see, Matthew... As he goes back and combs through these Old Testament scriptures, he remembers what Herod the Great did, the great treachery, cowardly, unbelievable horror of the slain of all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Now, were there hundreds of babies in Bethlehem? No. Best we can tell, if you want to use population ratios, there were enough. Because one would be too many, we know. But these Roman soldiers who canvassed the neighborhood and knocked on the doors, and when they saw the evidence, without another word, except in the name of the king of the Jews, Herod the Great, this must be done. And baby boys snatched out of their parents' arms and slaughtered before their very eyes. You know, there are some people that laugh at Christmas. They talk about how Christmas is, oh, it's all just about a baby. No harm, no foul. It's all just about the birth of an innocent one and everybody's happy. Everybody gets presents. Everybody sings carols and it's a holly jolly Christmas. Oh, give me a break. Matthew says, this isn't just about the birth of a baby and everybody's happy. This is about tremendous loss. This is about darkness. And Matthew rightly turns to Jeremiah because what Jeremiah's talking about, Ramah is a village about six miles north of Jerusalem, whereas Bethlehem was about six miles south. There was a graveyard in Ramah, and the tomb of Rachel was in Ramah. And Rachel was the mother of Benjamin and Joseph. And the idea in the prophet's mind is when the Jews were conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C. and sent into exile, they had to walk across her grave to be taken into captivity. And the image is the great mother, Rachel, weeping for her children because they're lost. They are no more. And yet what is Matthew trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that God had an ultimate plan. And in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this despair, in the midst of a handful or quite a few families in Bethlehem having their lives completely turned inside out, that even in the midst of that and the weeping that went all the way back to an ancient Jewish mother crying for a nation because of their sin, even in that darkness, there is a promise of hope. There is the birth, the virgin birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He was born exactly where he was supposed to be born, in the city of David, though everyone else overlooked it. 
He was called out of Egypt, just like a nation was. He was brought to Egypt and then returned home when the time was right. A perfect analogy to the fact that this time, the saving of God's people would be fulfilled. But a reminder that Christmas indeed does carry a high cost. He's got one more. It's the strangest of them all. It says, you'll have to listen to this. I didn't put it on the screens for you. It says that when they did come back to the land, they immediately migrated back toward Bethlehem. Maybe he figured that, hey, I didn't make reservations last time. I'm not going to be caught like that again because there's always going to be a census. So maybe they went back thinking they would live in Bethlehem. But God said no. And in verse 22, it says... When Joseph heard that Archelaus, that's the son of Herod the Great, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee. And he came and he resided in the city called Nazareth. That what might be spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Okay. This is a tough one. There is no verse in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene. It's not there. You can go dig. You can do whatever you want to. You're not going to find it. But this is what you will find. You will find that there is a a verse in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. It talks about a, a new growth, a new sprout, a new root that would grow out of the stump of the tree that represented the nation of Israel. You will also remember that Nathaniel, one of the followers of Jesus, when Jesus was calling Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel is the one who just said, matter of fact, how could this guy be anything? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now see, that tells us something. It tells us that Nazareth was a place where people looked down upon it don't know why. Maybe he just had a bad history. Whatever reason, Nathaniel didn't even, it was almost like a proverb. I mean, you got to be kidding me. How can the Savior, how can anyone important come out of Nazareth? We know nothing good comes out of that place. But it's that word Natser where we get the word Nazareth and Nazarene. That's that shoot of growth. It comes out of nowhere. You know, I'm no tree trimmer, but I'm just a tree hacker. If I see something I don't like in my yard, I just knock it off. And I did so with something we got growing in our front yard. I can't remember what it is. But I cut it off over a year ago. But the other day when I was checking to make sure all the downspouts were ready for the big rain we're going to get someday, I noticed... The end of that, where that stump is, if you will. There's this new shoot. It frustrated me at first. I cut you off. What are you doing? If I leave you alone, you're just going to sprout back up and get in my way again. Now you begin to see where Matthew's coming from. He shall be called a Nazarene. 
He was taken back and his mom and dad brought him up in that village because nothing good would come out of that city just as no one would have expected the Savior to come out of Bethlehem and just as that new growth that Isaiah 11 talks about a new growth, a new shoot, a new sprout will spring from the root of Jesse and in that person would be the fulfillment of all of God's plans. See my friends that candle was lit for the right reason. What I think should have happened doesn't matter. What you think should have happened is about as important as what I think. It's God who provided for us salvation through His Son, Jesus the Christ. See, we have to realize the life of a believer is no ordinary life. When you look back at this amazing picture from Matthew, from Joseph's point of view, the birth of the Savior. What are you going to see? You're going to see some amazing things. We can all be saved because of what we read here and what was fulfilled. We see here that God is in control. There is no doubt that He is the one orchestrating all of these events, the fulfillment of all these strange prophecies that we just simply got to go back and do a little homework to get the right perspective. God's planning is perfect. Don't ever forget that. And that he has a plan for you and me. Don't ever forget that. It's this chapter that convinces me the ultimate fulfillment and the reality of things like peace, love, and joy. They're ever real. And it's this passage. It's a correct understanding of what this candle represents and what was fulfilled. Where we understand that the birth of Jesus... Is everything. Everything. That's the way it happened. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you, to hear your word, and to make choices that reflect our love for you. Father, I pray that you I pray that you become more and more real to us in the days to come. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. We close this service the way we close every service, an invitation, an opportunity for people like you and me to respond to what God's word teaches us today. God has spoken to us, and so he gives us an opportunity to respond. And we offer this final closing song as that opportunity to do just that. There'll be deacons and ministers standing here to, to receive and to pray for and to, to give guidance and to help any who have important decisions to make. Like what? Well, it could be that you're here today and you have never acknowledged Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of everything we talked about this morning. Typically, or chiefly, your Savior, the only one who can provide salvation for you. Receiving Him is a step of faith. It's crossing a line of faith. It's praying a prayer of forgiveness and asking Jesus, inviting Him to come into your life. We'd invite you to come and make that choice today. Maybe you're here and know Him, just have never told the world. Tell the world by telling us. Profess your faith in Him. 
If you've yet to experience the joy of the symbol of believer's baptism, we invite you to make that choice today. We can schedule a time and explain to you the importance of of what that symbol of obedience is really all about. A church to call your own. Maybe that's what you're looking for, a place where you can, can connect, where you can serve. We offer that to you. Someone rightly said, paid us a great compliment, said that we were a church that worked. And I appreciate someone from the outside who would view our congregation. And if they were to say anything about us, they would say we're involved and we work. But we invite you, if that's what God is leading you to do, to come and work alongside us. Not for work's sake, but for the kingdom's sake. And then maybe it's at this season of the year, maybe it's circumstances going on in your life that have muddied the waters. We'll clear it up today. Matthew did an amazing job. That's what happens when you're inspired by by God to write these words. He did an amazing job of taking so many things that seem to be unrelated and connecting them together. And it's all for you and me. So whatever that step of obedience is, make it today. You'll be glad that you did. That's our invitation. We stand together. We ask you to step out and come forward right now.